Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club, where we may be concluding our discussion of Hobbes the Box book, The Church, Paradox, and Mystery. We announced that we would. We'll try to keep our word. But you never know. There's a lot to discuss here. And we are going to pick up where we left off, which is uh, we ended chapter six. We're going to take chapter seven and the appendix, because the appendix actually is quite fascinating. It's actually a talk you give in Notre Dame after the council. So let's begin. I don't hear anybody. Well, the very first sentence here on page 173, dear friend, you asked me what, in my opinion, will be the characteristic features of holiness in the future. Well, in my opinion, such a question cannot be answered. I am no prophet, and even the prophets themselves would not know how to answer you. Skipping a couple lines, each saint's life is like a new blossoming, an effusion of a miraculous Eden-like ingenuousness, a quote from Bernanos. So you had that on line too, I see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the next page is, is the critical page, unless you want to comment on this page. No, I think that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so that's right. You... I have most of the bottom half of 174 highlighted, but I dare say that you do too. 174? Well, then he starts going into, he can't say exactly what a saint will be, but he can try to pinpoint what a saint will not be. Yeah. On the other hand, it should not be too difficult to indicate certain characteristics they will not have. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the very first thing he mentions is they won't be ideologues. Or ideologues either. Right. Right. How do you say that across the pond, Joseph? We say ideologues, uh, and, and we, but we don't say ideum. Uh, you say idiots? No. <laughs> or idiot. Well, I like the pronunciation ideologue because you hear in it the word idea, and an ideologue is simply someone who's fixated on a single idea to the point of reductionism, right? In order to fit everything in this one idea, I start lopping off parts of the truth or parts of reality that don't fit my idea. And so anyway. Also, also the ideal goes, it fits in there too, because they have these kind of often utopian ideals, as you say, one idea is an idée fixe, they will say in French, or not a fixed right. idea, mm-hmm. and everything else that doesn't fit right. has to be uh, eliminated. Right. So they're not going. The saints of the future are not going to be ideologues. Okay. And also moving down. Don't go too far. Okay. Then you go next, Father. Where do you want to go? They will not try to define or realize in themselves, quote, a new type of saint. Those quotes any more than a new kind of priest or layman. If they accomplish great things, it will not be by dissertations on the courage to dare. (laughs) Truth speaking to power. Right. Which sometimes has to take place, but... Right, right. Uh, Nor will they yield to an infantile need for security by attaching themselves to the church's tradition. This tradition will be a source of strength not a millstone around their neck. I see Delubach going after extremes on both sides of the spectrum, if you will, 
you know, the people who want to change the church into something new with all these new modern ideas that are going to make people freer and happier on one hand, or the people who want to, in order to prevent that, hold on to something so stubbornly that uh, they won't uh, accept real renewal when it comes. Yeah, well, I agree completely says, with that, oh. that the, the, millstone, the millstone around the neck can be a millstone for certain type of mad trad, as well as, of course, those who want to get rid of tradition and consider That's it to right. be an unnecessary burden. So I agree with that. But I do think that he does, after that, immediately after it, make it clear that real reformers will not think tradition irksome. So perhaps right. some of them will be reformers who will have to show themselves strict, but none of them will be compulsive critics of what has gone before. Their strictness will not be negative. Their work of reform will not have a basis of resentment against yes. the past. They will not yield to the deceptive and sterilizing oppositions put forward by men without experience and knowledge of history. In other words, a lot of modernism is based on ignorance. Between the love of God and love of neighbor, between prayer and action, between the interior life and the presence in the world, they will not confuse the idolatry of man with brotherly charity. And I love that as well. Because we talk about ideology. I mean, uh, again, my, one of my father's favorite, favorite quips about communism is that their, their, their philosophy is be my brother or I'll crack your skull. In other words, you know, the liberté, fraternité, uh, égalité um, becoming an idolatrous creed for which you will kill people. You'll kill people in the name of the brother. So again, he's not saying we're not, we mustn't confuse brotherly charity, loving our neighbor with the adultery of man, the city of man as a utopian God. So which modern 20th century setting fits perfectly his description is, I mean, I just couldn't help thinking of Mother Teresa, right? Who avoided, obviously loved the true and abiding traditions and doctrines of the church and 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 loved her neighbor as herself and didn't see any conflict at all between those two things and did something new and did something new at the same time and so this is possible this is possible for god the holy spirit to raise up such people and uh and we I, just I, I hope just was, and, I, yeah i think it sort of summed up in, in 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 the radical nature of the word radical right uh that we, we do new things if we if we stay connected to the roots, right? Um, once we become a tumbleweed, we just get blown away, blown around, and blown away by whatever happens to be the fad and fashion of the, the age. We go with flow. But if we're rooted, we can actually be radical in, and do you know dangerous and adventurous and exciting new things. Yep, that's right. And there's a one, another little phrase on page 175 I like because it reminds me of C.S. Lewis. Uh, they will have no feelings of superiority in their faith over the believers who have gone before them. And C.S. Lewis has that wonderful term, chronological snobbery, right, where we look down on the past as, as inferior merely because it's the past. Evidently, the, 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 we are superior to what has gone before us. I know when I was younger, which is a long time ago, there was a talk about the coming of age of the church coming of age. Well, it's true that there was an infancy and a growth and adolescence and so on, but uh, the difference with the church, which Dulubach has pointed out in other books, is that you don't lose your past. You never lose your childlikeness, your early stage, when you go through adolescence and, and greater maturity. And who is to say 
that the fathers of the church, that Irenaeus, you know, and Origen and Augustine and Jerome, that they're somehow less developed, less mature Christians than those of us who live in the 21st century. Sorry. I remember, I remember the priest, the first priest who instructed me to come into the faith was a, a holy, a holy Benedictine. He's now actually the abbot of Downside. Um, uh, but he, he would try to counter my traditional attitude to Catholicism as I'm being instructed. I kept saying that the, the, the church is the rock, the rock, right? That just holds firm. And he said, well, it is that, but it's also a pilgrim. And at the time, I thought, well, that was a hideous modernist way of seeing things uh -huh. the might go bad. But of course, he meant it exactly in the sense in which you just said it, Father, that the pilgrim is the person, the, the mystical body of Christ is someone who, who is moving through time. Uh, but it's the same person, right? It's the same church. It's not going to cease being what it was because it's moving forward. Uh, in time. So it's only later, you know, that I sort of came to see, obviously he was much wiser than, than I was. Uh, I, I had to gain an element of wisdom before, before I perceived that. Well, at the risk of making myself and others uncomfortable uh, as an excursus here, because God is not in time and God is more real than we are, our past has not ceased in God. Our past is as present to him as our present is. And that I believe risen, it'll not just be us in our last moment, or even the world is, it's going to be the entire world present, including us from the, from the zygote to our last dying day. And all of our lives will be there in kind of a condensed form. All the way. And so the, the bad part is, oh my gosh, all my sins too? Well, just like the wounds in Christ, uh, but if they're repented sins, There'll be signs of glory and not signs of shame. Amen. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's right. That's right. Uh, I also notice uh, Delubach understands that the real saint, you know, is another Christ. And that means someone who's configured to Christ, including his suffering. Right. And uh, that's on page. We find that on 178. He'll be plunged into the mystery of suffering, into abandonment, into private solitude, into the nausea of sin, which is an allusion to uh, Sartre, right? Uh, um, in his turn, to be another Christ. Not, must we repeat once again, a man desirous of surpassing Christ, but on the contrary, one whose entire ideal, whose entire life will be configured to him. The face of God will appear. I mean, that is what we see when we see real saints. We see Christ himself, don't we? Yeah, which is yeah. why, you know, I, I was tempted to say that at the beginning of the chapter that I disagreed with it because, you know, uh, what will uh, the feast of holiness be in the future? Well, they'll be ultimately the same as they were in the past. And and he says this actually in this page. He, he, he says, um, where is it? Have I missed it? Or maybe it's in this page. Yeah, uh, page 176. This new, this is the final paragraph. This new man, this saint, so different as he would have to be from his numerous predecessors, and I also agree with that because we're all unique individuals, will nonetheless reproduce their essential characteristics. In other words, there are certain essential aspects of what sanctity is, and that's going to be, you know, so we have the virtues and we have the, 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 the sins, and, and they don't change. And so the, the saint and the sinner in, in the future is going to have those essential characteristics uh, uh, irrespective. So I, 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 I agree with what he's saying, 
because there will be new, there'll be new circumstances and every new saint is a new person. So I agree with that. But also a saint is, by definition, someone who has sanctity, which also has a definition. Right. I think, Delo, I remember him doing this once. It was probably quoting someone else, but he said, uh, uh, no people are more close to God and, than the saints, and no people are more unlike each other than the saints. So you know, on the one hand, what makes them same is their devotion to God. But, you know, how do you compare uh, Teresa Lisieux with Jerome or Augustine or Thomas Aquinas and Mother Teresa? I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they're unique, really unique. And yet, like you say, Joseph, the core is the same. It's the Marian core, fiat, miki, secundum, verbum, tuum. Let it be done according to your word. But God's word is so, is so rich that if 10 people say yes to God, you're going to get 10 different results out of that. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Good morning. The only other thing I've on this chapter myself, I only have one other thing on this chapter myself, and that's page 178. Actually, just after the part that Vivian just read, and it's just a reiteration of what we've discussed here, because he, he's reiterating it, middle of the page, that the philosophers who, even into our own day, have dealt with the divinity, have all belonged to the world's infancy, that now we have finally reached adulthood since yesterday, exclamation mark, and we all ought all speed to rid ourselves of the remnants of primitive thought that encumber us. So again, the whole idea that we are superior to everybody that came before of us because we have reached adulthood since yesterday. Now, now we have reached adulthood. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> it means that we, we have experienced and we understand and respect everything that's gone before us. You know, we haven't become adults since yesterday, even though that in many modern ideologues, that's what they do. They, they go back to Marx or they go back to Darwin or they go back. And before that, nothing exists. Right. And to be clear, those statements are Delubach's echo of what other people say. That's not what he right. himself thinks, right? Yeah, right. Of course. Right. Mm -hmm. of course. Well, and of course, I, I can travel 60 miles in an hour where no one else could until the last century. But I also don't see much along the way for someone who had to walk it in two or three days, you know. Like one time when I was in the no, bishop. And ironically, we have less time consequences. When I was in a Jesuit division, we used to take these long hikes, and of course, we were young, you know, aggressive, energetic males. And so we always wanted to make the longest hike we could, you know, 10 miles, 12 miles, 18 miles, and we didn't have all day to do it. But one summer, a Jesuit named Norm Sinsky, Norm, who's now a priest of the uh, Holy Cross Fathers, we said, Let, let's, let's just take a walk this afternoon, and we'll, we'll just pause whenever there's something interesting to see and see how far we get. We get about 100 yards. I mean, you know, there's a little creek there, and you see the water skaters, and you, you see a little fish, and then there's little flower buds, and there's little bugs. And I mean, it's amazing uh, what you miss uh, when you have modern forms of transportation. And by the way, when you're hiking and you see someone hiking on the trail the other way, you usually stop. I mean, at least when you're up in the high Sierra, you do that. You don't stop on the freeway to talk to the person coming from the other lane. I mean, that's just a totally anonymous person. Anyway, I'm. Right, I'm I, uh, if I could just, if you could just take, I know we can keep, keep keep taking tangents here, but I, I just want to say something because I, I love this. You must know about the time uh, George Sayer mentions that I think in his book on Lewis, when 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 Tolkien went out on, 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 for a hike with with Warney and Jack Lewis. Do you know that story? I, a, I heard it, but I forgot to tell it to us. 
Yeah, so, C- so C.S. Lewis and, 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 and his brother, uh, Warney, like to take energetically and vigorously as, uh, you know, for exercise, right? And they took talking with them, and Tolkien stopped every hundred yards or so to look at a flower or admire a tree. And at some point, Lewis was getting so irate because they couldn't make progress that uh, he actually asked George Sayer, look, you walk with him and we'll meet you at the pub whenever you finally arrive. And they, they went their separate ways. But again, two different approaches to the same activity, right? One's just wants experience every moment is not in a hurry the other one wants to get the exercise and get it done sounds like hiking with father fessio <laughs> so <laughs> you were know, like you we, don't have to guess which one wants to reach the top in the shortest right. amount of time <laughs> yeah when we used to take pilgrimages you know my idea of pilgrimage you don't rent a bus or, or a plane you you rent a van go together and you you, you plan it as you go but whenever we stop to see a church I mean, you stop to see a church in France, you can spend three days there. I mean, you know, there's a stained glass windows, there's a history of the thing, there's the statues, the gargoyles, and so on. But, you know, I, I got a little impatient. So what would happen was uh, we'd be visiting this, this church, and when I, I started to sing the Salve Regina, everyone would, would join in and we'd leave. But it was interesting to see the people, others in the church, these weren't while services going on, you know, all of a sudden it was like a, what do they call it? A flash mob? Yeah, you know, that's right. We were, we're, we're seeing the salivate. All right. Well, let's put an end to my uh, wanderings and go to the appendix. Uh, we don't want to remove the appendix here. No appendectomy on this book. No, this is too important. But there's the a appendix. lot of things in there important. There, there really are. Uh, first of all, he, he sets the stage with, with the, crisis that we're in as much as i hate the fact that that word is so overused it's become meaningless and then he shows how the council was in fact the form of renewal that the church was supposed to follow and he takes several documents and shows how the opposite was the result exactly and that's such an eye-opener for uh anyone who wants to have in a nutshell what the council tried to do versus what happened this chapter is is that well let's jump ahead to that i, I i'm going to i'm going to largely stand aside because i i i read it but i find it very dense theologically for me and i think i'd rather leave it to, to, to i mean i'll join in if you say something but i did want to just on the first page if i can because i think there's some very very good observations about what the crisis is here you know re- until recently we spoke only of change to characterize we use the word accelerated not just Common crisis is more acute, accelerated. In other words, things are happening quicker. Not, so it's not change, and then it's destruction. A yes. new favorite is the word destruction. And then the quote there from um, uh, Andre Chastel, era will probably be characterized by the rapidity of the development that has led to what one would call in anticipation an irresistible and mysterious self-destruction. So if you have this irresistible mysterious self-destruction which is also um acceleration uh we we can that that's where the word crisis i think is being used uh, aptly and and having said that i'm going to leave the stage to 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 the experts yes well this uh, this one i know you wanted to jump ahead okay this one quote uh from eric vile a 20th century uh philosopher in the middle of page 182, I mean, this describes the streets of San Francisco. Uh, uh, we, uh, you know, that he says in the most advanced societies, what are we finding? Suicidal, neurotic, 
neurotics, converts to false religions, alcoholics, drug addicts, criminals without motive, those in search of experiences and distractions. I mean, that describes the streets of many of our cities right now, full of these kinds of people. And then this other philosopher he mentions, this Paul Ricoeur, who, who, by the way, taught at the University of Chicago, where he links this increasing rationality with increasing insanity. And this sort of odd juxtaposition of these two things happening at once. Why is this happening? How is this happening? And, and that Chesterton thing, as you said, insanity is not a defective reason. It's an excessive reason. Right. Like the paranoid. Right. And so that he sets up the situation, the modern situation that we all find ourselves in when he was writing this and at this very moment, he does it really brilliantly, I think, in bringing in these modern philosophers to describe what we're seeing right before our eyes, actually. When when I read that, actually, the the discussion I would like to have, I'm not just we have it now, um, but it's, you know, the the more rationalized world, the difference uh, about that which is rational, in other words, that which is uh, conforms to reason, and that which is rationalized. Uh, you know, rational, is rationalization reasonable? And I think that, and that's what I think that this Paul Ricoeur is, is grasping with and, and grappling with here, is that, you know, the excessive reason, as Father said, is rationalization, right? To try to make everything as, well, not rational, that's the whole point, it's not rational. It's rationalized, and it's not the same thing. Well, maybe I, I. The other interesting thing that he does in this chapter is shows how, at the same time that there is this impetus to tear everything down in the modern world, so the modern world pitted against itself, all this violence against structures and authority and even reality itself. At the same time that that's happening, it's also being turned toward the church from within the church. But ironically, the people who want to tear down the church want to model the new church on the modern world. The very thing that the people out there are also tearing down. And he shows you this bizarre paradox that within the church, people have turned their own church into the enemy, when at the same time, the world that they're idealizing or worshiping or want to follow or copy, they're also tearing down. It's it's and then this quote here on 186 where he talks about such men in the church. Um, uh, you know who does this describe perfectly? There is no fear of agitating public opinion against the church. Uh, it seems that at times we have lost every inkling of the nature and demands of Christian freedom, and I wonder at the good conscience of so many sons of the church. He's talking about the clergy now who without ever having done anything great, without having thought or suffered, without having even taken the time to reflect, become every day the accusers of their mother and their brother to the applause of a foreign crowd. And you know who that describes perfectly? Father Charles Curran, who while he was teaching at Catholic University, becomes the chief dissenter against Humanae Vitae and organizes efforts to take out full page ads in the New York Times. So this very thing, agitating public opinion against the church. When I read that, I, okay. And we think, oh, well, that was back, you know, that was back in the late 60s, early 70s, you know. Are we done with that yet? No, we're not, because the Father Currens are now still there. Maybe even Cardinals now, who knows? Yes, and that's, it's unfortunate 
that this talk, which is given, I think, in 1969 or something like that. I was looking for the date of when this was given, Father, and I, I couldn't find it. It's obviously uh, after the council, but... May 20th, 1969, on page 181. Um, it's still, we're still in this moment. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate this is so contemporary. I know. But, of course, Newman, you know, God bless Newman, finally became a saint. And why it took so long is more than I can understand. But uh, just two little phrases from this quote on page 187. Yes. The first, the irreverence towards antiquity, and then down five lines to the bottom, and craving for change in all things. Yep, yep. And the general irritable state of mind. And this theme or motif we find elsewhere, and this is where wherever side of the spectrum you are, thinking that you are an agent of positive change in the church, whatever direction you're trying to pull it in, if you end up adopting this general irritable state of mind, you're 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 not helping. <laughs> Let's just say that. Have I said before a principle which I can't uh, label my own because I found it elsewhere? But if it's not necessary to change, it's necessary not to change. Oh. That could go in either direction. One no, but if if something you have is especially been there for a long time and you don't need to change it, well, don't change it. Page one ninety, new paragraph. Let us not be afraid to say it. None of all that holds any promise. A faith that dissolves cannot make anything fruitful. A community that disintegrates is incapable of radiating or attracting. Agitation is not life. Yes. The latest slogan is not a new thought. They didn't have bumper stickers in France at this time. But, I mean, that's the... Agitation is not life would make a fabulous bumper sticker. <laughs> Although the whole purpose of bumper stickers yeah. is to agitate. Right. So maybe we should scrap that idea. Yeah. Well, how about, how about uh, the latest slogan is not a new thought. Right. That would be a bumper sticker too, but that would be the latest slogan. Right. <laughs> You'd be self-contradiction. Self uh, is, yeah. is, is there anything wrong with agitating the agitators? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's like those who are, are intolerant of the intolerant. Um, okay, then now we come to the part I wanted to jump forward to, but we're here, so that's good. We're here. Uh, page 191, because he's going to just give an example of how after the council, the genuine text and the genuine meaning of those texts was subverted. Yep. And he goes, he goes through document by document. Yep. He says, the last council outlined the program for this renewal. Everyone claims or claimed to uphold it, but in different ways. In reality, it is little known, little followed. Skip a line. From the very first hour, a distorting interpretation began to be widespread. On December 22nd, 2005, the year that Pope Benedict was elected, he gave that famous talk to the Cardinals saying there have been two ways of approaching the council. A hermeneutic, that is a way of interpreting it, of this rupture or one of renewal. And, or continuity. And continuity. That's right. So he takes De Verbum. On the next page, he says it led to a narrow biblical. De Verbum was a document on sacred scripture, which is a magnificent document. That That is a a classic, classic, it will be long-lived, long-standing church document. But he says, because it, it, it really emphasizes the importance of sacred scripture as well as sacred tradition as well as the Eucharist. But what has it led to? 192, a narrow biblicism develops that ignores all tradition. The Lumagensum on the church is the people of God. What happens on page 191? People of God in order to transform their church into vast democracy, misunderstanding. 
went further down that page. God in respect, church in the modern world, opening of the world. What has it been? Page 194, a dissolution into the world. Which, by the way, ends up leading to a betrayal of the world. Because now you no longer have anything to offer the world. That's right. Which is why you're here. Okay, move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Korean religious liberty, which did a great deal towards helping us to understand our brotherhood, you know, with Protestants and even others who are not of the, of the Christian faith. But now that led to this idea of no longer a need to proclaim the gospel, indifference of the gospel. And then he mentions the sacred liturgy. At a time, sacrilege is violent. He doesn't give examples here, but that's probably the one the most sinned against. So, yeah, every single positive step the council took has been by some group, uh, sometimes within the church, I mean, hierarchy, hijacked. Yes. Yes. Which, by the way, yeah, is I, 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 I hope in, uh, you know, in the fullness of, of time, so after our time, you know, that the, 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 the Vatican II documents can actually be understood and read in the manner in which they were uh, written, um, because it's the whole thing has become charged with an arrogance and ignorance, and a, 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 an ignorance of the texts. And, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I've not sat down and, and studied the, the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council text. But the point is that everybody has an opinion about Vatican II, and no one read anything that Vatican II wrote um and, and and that's the problem and i think that part of it is because of the chaos that ensued because of this abuse uh that that uh, do talking about here of the of the council's document what the council actually taught was not taught but something uh, masquerading as its spirit was taught instead and then you have the reaction against that and then people just become um polarized you know yes. between vatican two kicks and pre-Vatican to Catholics, and then the whole thing just becomes a civil war, and no one's actually looking at the humans at all. And well, I think that's the tragedy. One of the good fruits of our deciding to discuss this book, which is basically a set of commentaries on Lumazensin, which is that Vivian, you went back and reread that. I did. And that was enlightening, was it not? Yes, it was, very much so. Especially to read it in the light of what's gone afterwards. Yes. And so in order for what you're talking about, Joseph, to happen, the renewal that was intended because we read these documents and take them to heart in the spirit in which they were meant, Delubach gives us two conditions, two conditions for this to be able to happen. The first one on 199 yeah. is the love of Jesus Christ. It is this love that makes the Christian. Boom. And then the second condition on 203 is love and concern for Catholic unity. We need both things. We need love of Jesus, number one, and then we need to have the kind of love and forbearance with one another that tries to hold this thing together. And he, what he says down here at the bottom of this page about disparaging remarks about the Pope, listen to this. Um, when the center of unity becomes the target of the most passionate attacks, with everyone believing himself entitled at any time to address the successor of Peter with arrogant reproaches before the whole world, then the church, the whole church, is wounded in the heart. Yep. They do not know what they are doing, he says on the top of page 204. Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. I want to conclude with the last paragraph, but before I get there, any other Comments prior to that last paragraph? No. Okay, so this is the last 
statement that Dubach makes in his talk uh, at Notre Dame in 1969. It's 205 at the bottom. Speaking before this noble assembly, well, okay, at the great, oh, no, sorry, this is St. Louis, at the great St. Louis University, I know I have not spoken as a scholar, as some might have expected. Perhaps this deserves a word of apology. Yet I know that I have spoken as a theologian. So we note that distinction between a scholar, that is, who's writing carefully and is footnoting things, and a theologian, okay? It is not necessary when the gravity of the hour demands it for the theologian to be able to spend for a moment his historical, or is it not necessary when the gravity of the hour demands it for the theologian to be able to suspend for a moment his historical investigations, of which he was a master, by the way, his constructions and his personal research, to which you would moreover be wrong at any time to attach an excessive importance in order to remember that his entire existence as a theologian and all the authority that this profession has earned him are founded above all on the task he has received to defend and illustrate the faith of the church. That's the Good. What so a beautiful, left, beautiful way to conclude. We left the last word to him. Uh, starting in the next session, we will discuss Faith and Reason, which is not a book about faith and reason in some abstract sense, but uh, some philosophers who explain their conversion to Catholicism. So we will see you. Father, I, I, I have a, oh, yeah, yeah. Just a reading assignment. We'll, we'll probably cover five or six pages, right? <laughs> I, I, I would say uh, read up to and not including chapter three. So introduction, chapter one, and chapter two. Okay, got it. Very good. God bless you all. See you next week. If you enjoyed this discussion. Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.